Good morning, everyone. I am Beth Ann, and I am part of the teaching team here at Riverbend. This has been our church, Tom and I. He's homesick, watching, so pray for him um, as he recovers. Uh, but this has been our home for 12 years, and it's the only church we've ever attended in Lehigh Valley. And I'm not saying that, that there aren't fantastic churches, because there are. This is just where we landed, and the first Sunday we came, uh, someone invited us out to lunch. And that's it. We've been here ever since. So it's a pleasure to be with all of you this morning. When Joe asked if I would be willing to teach, I didn't realize the scripture <laughs> that he was going to give me, which is the, the portion of scripture to speak on, which is the crucifixion. Um, so that is not an easy topic in any way, shape, or form to talk about. I'm not even going to try and do a deep dive into what that actually means. Instead, we're going to take a high-level look. There's macro, middle, and then micro. And today, we're going to take a high-level look at the crucifixion. I'm going to read through the verses um, from John 19, 1 to 27. I'm not going to have you stand for that. Don't worry. As I do this, though, I invite you to think about what kingdoms were colliding on the cross. There were very real systems of power, social systems, religious systems, governmental systems at play and colliding at the cr cr cross of Christ. So as I read through this, look at it from that perspective. John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis of charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and officials, excuse me, sorry, yeah. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to this law, he must die because he is claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat, a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabagatha. It was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. 
Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him, with him and two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had noticed preparation. Pilate had a notice prepared and fashioned to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but that this man was claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let us not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So we can see, as Jesus was standing before Pilate, in the Roman Empire, which was known to be a very, very corrupt, up to date, we have not seen a level of corruption that exists had existed under the Roman Empire, and Jesus is being crucified actually as a political criminal. You see, circ not circumcision, <laughs> crucifixion is only given for the worst criminals in Rome. So under the Roman rule, crucifixion was held for very special people, and these are the people that really threatened Caesar, who was the head of the Roman Empire. Other people had different punishments, but crucifixion was known as the harshest form of punishment. And here Jesus is standing before Pilate and not arguing his case. He was coming against, the kingdom of God was colliding with the Roman government. The kingdom of God was colliding against the power structure and social structure and gender structure and religious structure of that day. You would think he would have rose up, right? And conquered them. In fact, that's what his disciples wanted him to do. We know that as Joe spoke last week and, and Judas, the zealot, he wanted Jesus to stand up and take the throne of Israel to establish the kingdom of heaven to overthrow Caesar, to overthrow the powers, the structural powers that were in that day. But that's not what Jesus did. He actually chose to serve. Today, for us, we can face governmental, all over the globe, governmental power structures, social power structures, religious 
power structures. And many times we're tempted, right, to go in offense against. But how different, how different was the cross of Christ? He willingly died under the Roman Empire. <laughs> willingly. He said that here. You have no power over me except that what has been given to you. What about for you and I when, when we're hitting power systems in our life that we don't agree with, that are quite possibly corrupt or unjust? As Joe spoke back in the garden where Jesus was betrayed, as Peter got frustrated, right, and took the power system and cut the ear off the Roman soldier, and Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by it. And here is Jesus himself alone now from what Joe shared last week. He stood alone at this point because all his disciples left him. And here he is now in the governor's house, in Pilate's house. Pilate actually had no authority from a religious standpoint, from a Jewish standpoint, to condemn Jesus. And that's why he was saying, you you judge him. And they said, no, he's trying to overthrow Caesar. That's why you need to crucify him. It wasn't because Pilate was being benevolent to Jesus in this. It was because Pilate knew, oh man, this could get really dodgy for him because a riot could break out. And then the Roman system and the Jewish system could explode against each other. And Pilate was protecting himself against that. I know for me, when I face injustice in my own life, I'm tempted to take things into my own hands and to write it. What a different posture from what Jesus showed us on the cross. And he kept saying to his disciples, you're not perceiving the kingdom rightly. Jesus, do this. Jesus, do this. You don't know what you're asking. Sometimes I have trouble perceiving the kingdom of God in my own life. Do you? If we look at the posture that Jesus took here at the crucifixion, he was all alone. All his friends left him, except his mom and his best friend. <laughs> we'll talk about that at the end. Everybody left him. So here he is now standing before the Roman Empire, being judged. They release a murderer, crowd think, right? Weld up the crowd, crucify him, crucify him. I've been in a few riots in my life serving as a missionary in West Africa. It's amazing how quickly something can happen in the flesh. That's what happened. Crucify him, crucify him. They let Barabbas go. Barabbas was the worst of the worst. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the 33 years he spent on earth. On the cross, he actually quoted Psalm 22. There's a few Psalms that are messianic, meaning they point to the Christ. And he was quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
he willingly gave his life. He wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane, which literally means the place where the olive is crushed. What does olive oil represent in the scripture? Healing, freedom, wholeness. He was crushed in Gethsemane. And out of that crushing came the strength to endure the cross. Hebrews 12 says, he endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him. What was the joy that was before Jesus on the cross? It's you, Nancy, today. That's the joy. It's you, Lori. It's you, Matthew. It's you, Jane. It's you, Chris. It's you, Becky. It's you, Tabitha. He endured this for you and for me. That was the joy that was set before him. So he stood against the Roman Empire and willingly died under it. He did not try and flip it. But the kingdom of God was shown in it and through it in spite of it. Another kingdom collided on the cross. And that was the Jewish. That was the religious power system. Where they were mocking him, king of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders were completely threatened by him because they too misunderstood the kingdom and couldn't see the Messiah. Sometimes in difficulties and injustices, I have a hard time seeing the Messiah because I'm so focused on the injustice and the wrong that I can't see Christ. And I become a zealot. I'm gonna write this no matter what, no matter what it costs, no matter who I have to hurt no matter what I have to do, because this is right. That's what a zealot is. That's not the kingdom of God. Jesus also confronted his disciples, those that follow him on the cross, those that followed him on the way, because again, they thought he was gonna come and take the throne <laughs> of Israel and establish the kingdom of heaven right here, right now, and he did not do that. They were not perceiving him right, and he kept saying it over and over and over to his disciples. You heard Joe say last week, Peter, I'll die for you. Really? Because <laughs> in just a few hours, you're going to deny me three times, and then we see his heart of compassion. But I have prayed for you. Satan has Satan is going to sift you, but I've prayed. And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. So kingdoms collided on the cross. What would happen if you and I began to live in a way and held our posture in a way that we're not so intent on making everything right on this side? What would happen if you and I took a posture of letting the kingdom of God come through us serving. 
and letting the kingdom of God shine in that way. They didn't break Christ's legs on the cross. That too is from Psalm 22. Not one of his bones will be broken. The reason why that's interesting or striking, crucifixion took a long time as it was meant for abject suffering. If those being crucified were lasting too long, they would break their legs so they could not push themselves up anymore. Because they would push themselves up on the cross to take a deep breath. So if it was taking too long, they would just take a hammer and smash their legs so they would suffocate and wouldn't be able to breathe. Even that, even to that level, Christ knew what he was doing. Even to that level of suffering. That too is from the Psalms. It's another prophecy he fulfilled. I think in order to interpret these scriptures and to, to deal with, for us today, some of the situations we deal with in our society and our culture and our time, um, I think it's much better to perceive things the way Christ did and try and see the kingdom of God and to look for it. It's not so obvious. <laughs> but to actually begin to look where is the kingdom of God and how can this be expressed? I love the Beatitudes. I've been doing a deep dive into the Beatitudes and the Roman Empire for quite some time. Um, and that's why this, there's so much here that I could say. But to, to realize what was going on as Jesus walked. Christianity didn't hit the empire until Constantine in about 330 A.D., and that became a whole nother issue when Christianity was brought under the, the law of the day. But it wasn't there now. The Roman Empire was defiant against Christians and against Jews. Defiant against Christ. Jesus would have grown up seeing crosses as he walked into the city. We know from Luke 12, he would travel with his parents for the Feast of the Tabernacle, Feast um, of the Tents. He would travel to Jerusalem with them. So as a young man, it's extremely likely that he saw crosses on the hillside right outside the city. He knew. He knew what this punishment meant. This wasn't a surprise to him. And as Philippians 2 says, he didn't cons consider equality with God something to be, to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the very nature of a servant and died, even death on a cross. Is that how we hold ourselves before others? <laughs> even in light of injustice, Yes, we need to use our voice to speak, but many times I think we're, we can, I can border on zealotism, which is I'm just going to make this right, period. And we miss the kingdom of God. We miss it in ourselves, and we miss showing it to others. How striking is the cross of Christ? 
one of the things I'm personally working on is a book about the Beatitudes. If you put that, that first image up, usually the Beatitudes are shown very fluffy with hearts and soft images, and I don't think there's anything fluffy about the Beatitudes. They're often not taught to adults, I think, because they're too difficult. So we just render them to Sunday school. This is the posture that Christ had on the cross. These, this is the posture that gave him the power to suffer and die willingly under the Roman Empire, under deep, deep injustice. This is the posture. It's also where he preached the Sermon on the Mount. This is where the Beatitudes come from in the book of Matthew. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What do you think about that image, just looking at it? What are some thoughts about that donkey? Lowly. Yeah, a donkey was not um, valued. A donkey is a beast of burden. It's not a valued creature, certainly not in that environment and in many, many undeveloped nations today, developing nations. A donkey is simply a beast of burden. In Isaiah, it calls Jesus, he's our burden bearer. And he rode into Jerusalem, a king on a donkey. You want to be pure in heart? Humble yourself. Come in lowly, come in low. <laughs> Trying to serve others, come in low not with an agenda to overtake or even to set something right, but to show the kingdom of God. Can we go to the next image? This is Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. What do you see in that? What do you perceive from that image? What's the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper? Yeah, one is creative, which is reflective of the Lord, right? So one creates, one just keeps, one is a very defensive posture. What else? Difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. The peacemaker is, yes, a peacemaker is actually entering to work, right? They're inviting another to the table. A peacekeeper, there is no conversation. There is no invitation whatsoever. How does this intersect with the cross? How do we see that in the scriptures we just read of Jesus being a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper? That's right. Pilate was trying to hold the peace, right? Just keep the peace. I don't want a riot. I don't want the Jews to revolt and 
Rome to be shaken or Caesar to be challenged. Kill this man, right? He was a peacekeeper. Jesus was the peacemaker. I will come and serve and create. What posture do I take under injustice or difficulty or conflict? Am I a peacekeeper? Don't, don't. <laughs> Just leave it. Your view threatens me. I don't want to hear it. I'm not going to enter this conversation. Or do I partner with Christ and say, I'll be a peacemaker. I will sit and I will create and I will extend the kingdom of God. Romans 14 says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of food or drink, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. That's what the kingdom of God is, friends. Righteousness, right standing between God, self, and others. Peace, which is a direct fruit of that. And joy that has nothing to do with circumstance. That's what the kingdom of God is. And our world is dying for it. And sadly, sadly, there's a posture of zealotism. I'm just going to make this situation right. And it's such a low bar for the kingdom. So what would it mean for you and I? I know this is perhaps challenging. But what would it mean for you and I to take that posture, willing to suffer at times, willing to, to stand in an injustice and say, Father, how can I serve instead of how can I flip this? Willing in wrongdoing or injustices, I'm going to keep using that word, or systems of power that aren't okay, to say, Father, Show me the kingdom, and I want to reflect the kingdom. This is where kingdoms collided on the cross. And Christ was alone, right? Almost all his disciples, except his mom and his best friend, left. So this isn't going to be a popular position, friends. It's easier to go with the masses, right? Groupthink. But this is the very place in you and I and in society, in faith, in government, in governance. This is the very place where the kingdom of God can be revealed. It's where kingdoms collide. And the joy set before him, again, was not here. He was looking past what was about to happen to him because of you and I. and the rest of this globe to establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Can we put up the other image? In closing, what are you hungering and thirsting for? Are you hungering and thirsting for systems to be righted? Are you hungering and thirsting that those that have wronged you will be punished? Are you hungering and thirsting 
that society and circles of faith would be the way you think they should. All these things are going to leave us starving. They left Judas in despair and torture, and he took his own life. See, Judas wanted the systems to be righted, but in his way. That will leave us in a terrible place. Very bitter, very angry, very judgmental, very critical. But if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, after the kingdom, after following Christ, then the promise is we will be filled. And here's what we're filled with. Righteousness, peace, and joy. It doesn't mean everything's going to go okay. There's some very wrong things that you and I experience on this side of eternity. But the kingdom of God can be revealed in and through them. This image of the five loaves and two fish, this is really special to me. Um, a friend of mine has done all this art, by the way, so all of this art is custom. My mom, whose her one-year anniversary or her death is coming up, which is just unbelievable to me that time goes by so quick, but when I started to, to speak publicly 24 years ago now, um, I said to my mom when someone asked me to speak, I just said, why are they asking me to speak? I have nothing to say. By the way, I often feel that way. <laughs> Tom asked me this morning, how are you feeling? I was like, Meh, I don't know what to say. This happens to me all the time all the time, even though it's what I do for a living. Quite frankly, it's what I do. And my mom said this to me, just share your five loaves and two fish. That's all you're responsible for. And I want to present you that challenge today, the five loaves and two fish. What could that be in the circles that you walk in? What could that look like in your sphere of influence when you come against corrupt power systems? When things happen that are not okay, when yet another story pops up in the news and we want to practice what I call escapism theology. It sounds something like this. I wish the Lord would just come back and deal with all of this. Really what that is is a posture of judgment. This is what the scripture says. The Lord is tarrying because he desires that none should perish. But all come to eternal life through his son. That escapism theology, that's a peacekeeper. That's zealotism. That's just fix the system. That's not the posture that, that Christ took on the cross for me and for you. I'm very, very grateful that Christ doesn't treat me from a zealot point of view. Just fix her. And boy, he's got enough on his hands to do regarding that, I tell you. 
No, he tarries with me. To establish the kingdom of God deeper in my heart, in my soul, in my life, in my words, and my actions. So that I can reflect him more and more. So I leave you with this challenge today. What are you hungering and thirsting for? Again, for everything to be made right, you're going to miss it, friends. And you're going to end up really bitter and angry and in despair and very judgmental as a Christ follower. Or can we take the posture of Christ and come in low even in the face of injustice and societal upheaval.